0: In 1975 Kiss went to Cadillac, Michigan and made Kistery, real history This is one of the coolest things that a band's ever done. They went at the request of a football coach and they wound up playing at a high school. Wouldn't that have been great, Gary to see Kiss play at your high school? It would have been great to have anything cool happen at my high school. <laughs> Other than being shoved in a locker, no. Um, it, it was just amazing, and our one of our favorite felines, Mister Andrew Scambetti, the mm-hmm. drummer for the acclaimed tribute band Mister Speed, recently sat down with Mister Jim Neff, who was there at Cadillac, and who was the coach who said, "Hey, Kiss, would you be interested in being part of something?" And you're going to hear that interview now.
1: announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam. The incredible new Volkswagen Rabbit.
2: New hope in the new leader of the conservative party,
0: Margaret Thatcher.
1: There is a creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution.
0: President Ford looked down the barrel of a loaded automatic.
3: One of the most important events in 1975, as well as Kiss's rise to superstardom, is their famous trip to Cadillac, Michigan in October 1975. The entire event played out like a fairy tale. Losing football team plays Kiss in their locker room and causes the team to win. To celebrate their victory, Kiss made a special visit to Cadillac on homecoming weekend. With us today is the very man that brought Kiss to Cadillac, Michigan in 1975, Mr. Jim Neff. Jim, thanks for being here.
2: Andrew, it's uh, always a pleasure to speak to you and to speak to KISS fans all over the country and around the world. You know, it's
3: funny to me, you know, Jim, you and I go way back, you know, My Band Mr. Speed performed out there in 2009, um, and is actually the only KISS tribute band to play in Cadillac, but one of the things that you say to me that always rings, you know, speaks volumes to me is that you go almost no time with someone asking you or wanting to know about KISS's trip to Cadillac in 75.
2: Well, Andrew, that, that's true. And just to uh, highlight that, uh, just this very week, I got a uh, email from a KISS fan in Oklahoma. And uh, he's an Oklahoma football fan and is coming to uh, see Notre Dame and Oklahoma play. And since he was in this part of the country, he's going to come up in uh, late September, going to take the drive all the way from South Bend, Indiana, all the way to Cadillac, because Here's a KISS fan from Oklahoma that wants to come all the way to Cadillac, Michigan, just so he can see where KISS performed. So I'm going to give this guy the uh, the grand tour, as I do all KISS fans who uh, come up here. And uh, that just shows you the, uh, the staying power of this event. Here, here we are almost 40 years later, and we've got people coming as far away from Oklahoma to Cadillac, Michigan, just to see where the event took place.
3: You know, I read an excerpt out of Lydia Chris's book, uh, Seal with a KISS, which is another great KISS book. Um, and she initially didn't go, well, she didn't go on the trip, and I guess initially she didn't know how big this event was going to be, and then once she started seeing the newspapers and started hearing the reports from Peter and the rest of the band, she realized that this was something special. And what I think is great about the event is things like this, at that time and even now, they just don't happen. So, to hear that one of the biggest bands at that time rolls into a small American town, is unheard of so my my biggest question and i'm sure a lot of the questions that a lot of other kiss fans have how did this happen how did you get in touch with kiss and how did your relationship with kiss lead to this homecoming concert in
2: nineteen seventy five well andrew the uh... thing that you have to remember that most probably most current fans uh... don't know about because they were they're just too young is that this, is, uh, this happens at a time before there's social media. There's no such thing as the internet. There aren't even 8-track uh, tapes and, and cassettes yet. It's vinyl record time. In Cadillac, Michigan, we had one radio station that played two hours of rock and roll a day. And so uh, to have something like this happen and and have worldwide publicity was even more amazing because it had to be done through print media and and AM and FM radio, even FM radio, was in its infancy at that point. But how they they came to uh, learn about this was in 1973. We had uh, an undefeated football team, nine and zero, and in '74, when we, uh, we started practice, we thought we had a pretty good team. And so uh, we lost our first two ball games, and Coach Dave Bryan said, "You know, we've got to do something to loosen these guys up." So I, I suggested playing rock and roll in the locker room. And there's an old saying, uh, keep it simple, stupid, kiss. And that applies to football. And so I said, you know, I've got this band. I've seen them. I've seen them on TV. I've seen them open for the New York Dolls in Flint. And uh, they're just crazy and they're wild and they wear makeup and they'd they just be perfect. So he left it to me and I, we hauled out the old vinyl albums and started playing them in the locker room. And at that same time, I turned over that very first album and it said, Uh, Rocksteady Productions and so I sent a letter, snail mail letter, uh, telling the band what we were doing because at that time we'd already won our our next couple of games and so you know the music was obviously working and so uh, I got some response back from Rocksteady about another week went by and I got a response back from Bill O'Coin and uh, said you know this was was really cool and sent me a bunch of stuff, posters for the locker room, and so forth. And how Gene and Paul got involved, and and the band, Ace and Peter, too, was uh, uh, shortly thereafter, after Bill had sent me the letter, um, I'm sitting in my Lazy Boy, same house I live in now, and a new Lazy Boy, but it's still in the same location. (laughs) Uh, And I'm sitting there, and uh, I get a phone call. It's maybe like 8 o'clock at night. And, uh, you know, it's... uh, Hello, this is Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. And my re- my first reaction, as yours probably would be, yeah, right, who is this really? Uh, but it was, they were they were just about to go on stage someplace, they were out on tour, and they had heard about uh, what we were doing, and they were very, very excited. They thought it, just, it was very, very cool. And so they uh, talked to me for 10 or 15 minutes, and then they had to obviously go on stage, and, and Gene said, now, uh, if you keep winning, what we want you to do is uh, our manager, Alan Miller, will uh, tell you where we're going to be every week. And uh, if you'd be so kind as to call him and, and tell him what the score was so we know how you guys are doing. And so that's what started the whole thing. And every week for, for two years, um, I'd call, find out where they were, and I'd call uh, them, and, they, and they'd get the score. So they had that connection with Cadillac.
3: That's, that's great. I mean... Literally just sending a a letter to KISS is what started all this, which is so interesting to me because I can't imagine how many letters KISS get today or they've gotten over the years, and how many of those letters do you think got ignored? I, I almost can't put it into words because... Kiss knew that their fans were the springboard to get them to superstardom where they wanted to be. So they looked at this town, a hard-working American town, and I guess Kiss had always an affinity to Detroit or, or Michigan in general because obviously they wrote to Twirl Rock City, they recorded part of a live at Cobalt Hall, and it's always the, the springboard city for them. They even started their reunion tour there in 96. So so basically you get in touch with Kiss and when exactly did you start planning to have them coming to this homecoming in 75?
2: Well, this is uh, uh very interesting because i had been in contact with their manager at the time uh, alan miller and of course the road manager junior smalling and uh we looked at their schedule in uh the, let me back up just a second andrew after that first season in in uh 74 when we won seven games we won seven games playing kiss music mm-hmm. uh, they had us down to cobo hall they played cobo hall and the promoter was a guy named steve glance and steve said you know, if you, you want to bring down about a dozen kids, I'll, I'll put 12 tickets aside for you guys. So we took 10 players and went down and saw them at Cobo Hall. And uh, you being the KISS-storian uh, uh, supreme will appreciate that the very first song that I heard performed live at Cobo Hall at opening that first can- concert that I saw was Rock Bottom, which is, I think, a, a song that is rarely played by KISS. And here they were opening the, the show. Um, and so... We kind of talked back and forth, uh, Alan and I, and we found out that KISS was going to be at Western Michigan University uh, the week of our homecoming in 75. And so they had two or three days off. They were going to be at Western Michigan, and then they were going to be in the Chicago area. And I said to Alan, you know, my brother has a rock and roll band. And uh, would it be possible if, if, could KISS come up and maybe just sign some autographs or, or if We could get some equipment there where they maybe play a song at the pep assembly. And he said, well, you know, they they really don't like to play with other people's equipment, and they probably wouldn't like to do that. But let me get back to you and see what they say. So Alan got back to me and said, you know, we have two days in between. How about if we bring the whole show? And you have to understand, understand most people out there do, if they can remember their high school gym, the difference between Cobo Hall or some of the big arenas that Kiss was playing, and a typical high school gym is my is immense. I mean, it's it's you can't even almost think about it in your head to squeeze them in there. But of course, being young and stupid, uh, and and wanting to pull off this event and, and thinking why not, I said sure, let's give it a try. And so uh, that was the beginning of that that whole idea of maybe bringing them uh, to Cadillac for for a concert and then all the other auxiliary things uh, started to to fall in place. Well, as long as they're here, why don't we paint the entire town with Kiss makeup? Well, we can do that. Um, As long as they're going to be here, why don't we make them part of the homecoming parade? Well, we can do that. Uh, Well, as long as they're going to be here and in the homecoming parade, why don't we rename the main street of town Kiss Boulevard per day? Well, we can do that. Um, and it was just, it was just crazy. Uh, one thing led to another, and before long we had this extravaganza planned.
3: It's really funny to me how you're talking about the gym, because I've actually stood in that gym, and I'm sure many other KISS fans have stood in that gym too, but it really, it really isn't a, a giant place. Just estimate for me, how many people do you think were at the homecoming show?
2: I'm going to say that about 2,000 were probably there, between 1,500 and 2,000. I think the people who claim they were there uh, total about 50,000. I was just going to say that. (laughs)
3: It's so funny to me that you had an estimated 2,000 people that were there, but the number has basically swelled to over 50,000 that say they were there or said they were involved or something to the effect where they had a hand in this legendary concert, but when you look at the numbers, you look at the picture, there's no way that that many people could have been there.
2: Well, you know, as I always say, 2,000 people were there and maybe 1,500 to 2,000 and 50,000 say that they were there. Uh, and. For years afterwards, uh, I'd be teaching and I'd have a student come up and say, you know, were you here when when Kiss was here? And I'd play dumb and I'd say yes. And they'd say, well, you know, my aunt or my uncle or my cousin or or someone, uh, they're the ones who brought Kiss here. And I'd say, oh, really, that's interesting. Uh, there was even a gentleman here in town that, uh, for years, claimed that he had a hand in it. And and when you counted back in years, he would have been seven years old. So, you know, he was the, probably the smartest seven-year-old producer in the history of rock and roll. Um, so, you know, but I think the the key is is that so many people uh, listen to it outside the gym. Uh, we have people sitting in their backyards, two miles away, uh, hearing it. And and you have to kind of. Think about the the people that that, for example, a gentleman that I ski with is 85 years old, uh, still remembers and tells me the story every winter he recounts it about when he brought his daughter to the to the show, and it's still one of the great memories that he has about living in Cadillac.
3: You've ex- you successfully communicated with Kiss. You've planned the show. Take me back to the day of the show because, like most things, no matter how well you organize something. I'm sure that day that KISS was actually there was really stressful. So take me back. What happened when KISS arrived and we're getting ready to do
2: the show? Well, we we, there are a number of things. The first thing I I think people should kind of picture in their minds is the setup of our gym. You've been there, but uh, at that time, our gym had uh, an actual stage built into the long side, along one side of the gym, then the entire gym floor, and then bleachers on the far side. So... It was really set up kind of like a, a semi-auditorium, semi-gym. We already had a stage built in. Before the, the event came, uh, Steve Glantz, uh, pro- the producer out of Detroit and promoter, had sent one of his guys up to take a look at it. And so when Kiss arrived, and I arrived that morning, and there were all those semis, and I, I tell people seven semis, I uh, unbelievable amount of trucks, and, and uh, all the equipment that they brought. And along with that was equipment that Steve Blandz had set up, things like spotlights and and things that we don't have here in Cadillac, we didn't have at that time. So the first thing that happened was they started to unload the trucks, and uh, we understood or found out right away uh, the problem we were going to have with power. You just don't plug KISS into a wall socket. So what were we going to do? Well... One of the Kiss Road guys said, you have a transformer in your building where all the main power comes in. And I said, yes. And just by happenstance, it was about 50 feet from the gym. And so I took him down there, and there was this big power grid. And he had these two big cable things that looked like uh, jumper cables for a car, but they were immense. And he had a pair of rubber boots and a pair of rubber gloves. And he looked at me, and he said, well, we're going to have to tap into this live. He said, and, and I think I know what we can do, and here, you take the gloves, and I'm going to wear the boots, and I'm going <laughs> to clamp onto this. And he said, if I guessed right, uh, you know, great. If I guessed wrong, uh, pull us out. There's a chance that either you or I or, or both of us will die, but let's take a chance. So he reached up, he clamped on, and, and as luck would have it, he guessed right, and now we had power. This big, thick power thing, it looked like about a size of a boa constrictor running down the hall all the way into the gym. And that's how we got power to the gym, was direct power straight off the power lines coming into the building.
3: I can only imagine the electric bill that month.
2: Unbelievable. And then the other thing is, is that they started bringing all the equipment. And as you know from hauling equipment around, you can generally get things indoors if you tilt them the right way. But we got to the point where we had the KISS sign. And at that time, the KISS sign was... On a hydraulic lift and they would crank it up and it would rise from behind the drums and go up. So it was a pretty big operation and the sign was pretty big because it was meant for places like Cobo Hall. Uh, well, I'm in the gym and I hear this chainsaw rev up and I think to myself, what in the world are they doing with a chainsaw? And I rush out toward the noise here's one of the KISS road crew guys, and at that time the whole door frame was wood and it had a, a wooden post down the middle. And he was just ready to, to cut the post out with a chainsaw so they could get the sign in. And I waved him off, stop, stop, stop. So there's a lot of things I can get away with, but if you start, you know, cutting the school in half, uh, I'm going to be in trouble. I won't have a job tomorrow. And so we, that was the only piece of equipment we really couldn't get in. And uh, so we needed a backdrop for the stage. And uh put a, a hurry- up call to the uh, art class down the, down the hall and uh, uh, the art kid the kids got together and put together a big cardboard thing that was two lips and it said kiss and and we hung that behind the drum uh, kit so that we had some sort of a backdrop uh, for kiss to play in front of so you know those two things probably were the were biggest the biggest challenges and then the third thing i think that was interesting about that is they said uh, you know we'd like to we've got something really special in mind for you guys and i don't want to tell you about it because i want to make sure that uh, it's a big surprise and uh, they said but what we need from you is uh, compressed air and day of show i'm trying to figure out where could i get compressed air and somebody said well you know the ambulances all have compressed air because they, you know, they run, that's what they use for oxygen. So I called the ambu- local ambulance guys and they said, well, yeah, we can we can have the compressed air there if, we, if there's no calls during the concert. So uh, the upshot of that was uh, what they needed the compressed air for was they had put in the rafters, all kinds of confetti, and... Uh, At the culmination of the show, during Rock and Roll All Night, they unraveled this big net atop the stage, and they blasted it with that compressed air that came off the ambulances, and it became the KISS snowstorm. And everybody knows about the snowstorm now, and I claim that the snowstorm was invented specifically for Cadillac, Michigan, and became a part of of every KISS show thereafter.
3: And and it's funny, Mr. Speed had had a... a, uh, had a, I, I guess nothing like that, but they had a little bit of a snowstorm when we played there in two thousand nine. And I think I remember when we came back in two thousand eleven, there was still like a piece of confetti like stuck in somewhere. So I can only imagine what that was like in nineteen seventy
2: five. I'm going to tell you something, Andrew. Uh, better than that, I was sitting at a performance for a uh, for my granddaughter's choir uh, in in that auditorium where, where Mr. Speed played. And I'm talking about uh, maybe September. Or October of this year, and I found more confetti from Mr. Speed. <laughs> so it's still there, and I'm the guy that had to clean it up. So, uh, so I'm looking for it all the time. It's kind of a gold color, and uh, it still exists. It's uh, it's kind of fun.
3: Uh, so tell me about the show. Uh, we've seen Kiss's performances, you know, probably to the point of nausea. We've seen, you know, them performing at Coble Hall at '76. We've seen all these shows on videotape. Was there anything really special about the show that took place, you know, that October afternoon?
2: I think the, the the thing that Kiss fans will really relate to is how cooperative they were. You know, this is a, a small town, conservative, um, lots of churches, uh, basically, uh, you know, just a typical American small town, and. Uh, We were a little bit concerned about a couple of the songs. At that point, uh, for example, the intro into Cold Gin uh, that Paul did mentioned, you know, does everybody like to party and and drink or whatever? And uh, our head coach, Dave Bryan asked Paul. He said, Paul, you know, maybe it might be good to kind of tone that down um, for, uh, for our audience. And so Paul said, not a problem, and so they did that. The other thing was that uh, in our gym, there was no smoking and we told the band this and you know, and during the show, there was someone who started to smoke in front of the stage and Gene Simmons literally during the show pointed to the guy (laughs) and security was able to come over and, and, uh, you know, tell him to put out a cigarette and and usher him away. Uh, They were more than cooperative. It, the show was great. They did every single thing that that, that uh, you'd see at Cobo Hall. Uh, we even did all the pyrotechnics. And, you know, looking back, uh, you probably couldn't pull that off today because of fire regulations. Uh, but we had all the pyrotechnics, the flames and the whole nine yards in our gym. And, and uh, when those flames went off, people say, it, you know, it was just like being standing next to the sun in that small <laughs> enclosed area because it was so hot uh never we never thought a thing about it we just did it and uh it was it was a full-blown kiss show and and uh, you know the people who have never ever seen a, a band of that magnitude before they were just awed because their frame of reference was you know a combo would come into town they play two or three songs or lip sync a 45 record and leave town and this for for I'd say probably 95 percent or 98 percent of our population was the first gigantic rock and roll concert they had ever seen, and it was uh, absolutely a phenomenal, mind-blowing experience for the entire town.
3: Wow, it, it's it's so cool to hear that because,
2: well, like you
3: said, Kiss was an arena band, and here they were, you know, in in this small little American town. I guess the question on my mind, and maybe the question on other, you know, Kiss historians like myself. Is there any video footage that exists from this show? Because we've seen whatever is on Kissology. There's also another quick little clip um, that uh, was on other Kiss compilation in the 90s. But does this show exist on video?
2: You know, it doesn't. And, and that's another one of those things. It doesn't exist on video because there was no such thing as video. It was on film. And uh, we had, uh, you know, we, we did not tell anyone that Kiss was coming to town until two days before the event. Because we wanted it to be for our town and our kids, our students, and, and we didn't want people coming from Detroit and all over the place and uh, coming into the event that we couldn't handle. We knew we had limited resources for security and so forth. So we want we kept it pretty much a secret. Uh, the only news, me- we had news media that came in from all over the world. Carol Ross at that time was doing publicity for Kissin' and she uh, arranged for all that. But we only really had... Other than snippets, bits and pieces, we only really had one TV station. It was a public television station out of Bay City, Saginaw, uh, Michigan, who came up and and did uh, any kind of filming. And about a week after the concert, they had myself and and Coach Bryan's down to their studios uh, at Delta College. And uh, they did a little half-hour show and showed some of the video. And we asked for a copy of the video, and they said that they would send it to us. Well, weeks went by, and I asked again and again, and finally they said, "Well, they had lost, lost the film." Years and years went by, and we got bits and pieces from other people who had taken some shots, and you've seen all the all the snippets from the concert. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Kiss Online was going to, to start doing something about this uh, uh, event, and uh, of course, working on the DVDs and so forth, and. They tracked down uh, some of that footage uh, from one of the cameramen who had worked at that TV station and had literally just absconded with it and kept it in his basement all those years. I don't know how they negotiated, and some of the footage that came out in that first Kissology DVD, I had never even seen. So uh, the the short answer is it, 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 it exists in bits and pieces, but no one ever thought to... Filmed the whole thing. We, you know, we just never imagined that it was going to be this mega event that would last for 40 years. Uh, and uh, you know, there were so many, so many things to do and so much to, to, to think about. Uh, setting some up with a someone up with a film to film it just never crossed our minds.
3: And it was so expensive at that point too. I mean, now everyone has a camera in their pocket, in their cell phone, or in their iPad, or you know, or a video camera that's basically the size of a dollar bill. It just didn't exist like that back then.
2: Well, you know, the, the, Andrew, the, the rig that we used to, to uh, we did film some parts of our football game. You know, now everybody in the football has videotape, but we used to film uh, our football game so the coaches could study it. And the rig that we had at that time was a 16-millimeter camera on a big metal shoulder harness uh, very, very heavy, very uncomfortable, uh, and, and, uh, and even then, after the, when the film uh, was done, you had to send it uh, down to Midland, Michigan, which is, you know, 90 miles away to have it processed. There was no place in northern Michigan to process it. So yeah, you're right, it was, it was very expensive, it was very cumbersome, uh, and you know, even, even news uh, reporters at that time, they were working with film on their still cameras. And so, you know, they had a limited budget of how many frames they could shoot, too. Um, so it wasn't like today, where, you know, everyone's their own journalist.
3: Yeah, that's, that's true. So, the concert's over, um, KISS obviously leaves town the next day. There's tons of pictures, there's some video footage of KISS on the football field right before they left, and it's them running into this helicopter, and KISS basically sailed away on this helicopter, um... What I thought was interesting is the story that you told me about the helicopter. So what, what happened with that helicopter when they took off?
2: Well, they, they, we knew that we uh, were going to kind of wind up the whole thing on the football field, and, and I was under the assumption, along with everyone else, Kiss had arrived in some limousines that they had uh, uh, imported, Steve had brought up from Detroit, and we just all assumed that they'd get in a limousine leave after having taken pictures and waving goodbye to the crowd and so forth. And as we're standing in the middle of the football field, out over Lake Cadillac, our, our football field is right next to the lake. Out over Lake Cadillac came this giant helicopter, and we were all just dumbfounded, uh, standing there with our mouths open. And the helicopter lands in the middle of the of the football field, uh, and Kiss jumps in the football field uh, into the helicopter, and the helicopter rises off the ground, takes a couple of laps around the, the football stadium. And then starts to head off in the sunset, and as they're passing over the stadium and, and that part of the city, they throw out the uh, leaflets that are famous now that says uh, "Kiss, you know, Cadillac Kiss loves you," all autographed by the guys. And those leaflets uh, drifted off from the from the helicopter, and away they went. Now that that helicopter exit was something that the Kiss people did themselves. We knew we were absolutely totally surprised that that it happened. Uh, is probably one of the more famous video shots that, you know, a lot of pictures were taken of that. And, uh, uh, you know, what a what a grand exit uh, for such an event. Uh, it was absolutely unbelievable.
3: Now, I heard a story that basically what the helicopter did is it rose up off the football field, did a couple laps, and then kind of went over, you know, a, a, like a wooded area, and then landed, you know, Less than a mile away from the football field, like they want us to think that Kiss got away in the helicopter. But literally, they just went like a mile in the helicopter and landed well, and got into the limo.
2: That's I, I I'm not too sure that that's probably correct. But you know, from the from the high school to uh, our local airport is a couple of miles, uh-huh. and it seems if it, I really can't tell you. Uh, you know, where they where they finally landed. But it seems to me that that would be the logical place, would be our airport, and then from there they would, you know, get in and, and go wherever they needed to uh, on the ground. Uh, they also could have gone to Traverse City, which was another airport 45 miles away. So it seems highly unlikely to me that they landed in any kind of a wooded area. I'm going to say they probably landed back at the airport.
3: You're probably right. But, I mean, like we've been talking about, there's the there's sense of folklore that kind of surrounds... The whole event. I mean, there are people that say they were there. that people that I saw this or I saw that, and none of it probably really happened. I mean, some of it did. Um, I mean, obviously, the people like you, like yourself, and other people that talk about it, you know, actually what happened. But there are so many people that say that they were the aficionado. They know what happened, but in actuality, they probably weren't there, or they were probably seven and <laughs> had this photographic memory at seven that no one else in the world has. Right. Uh,
2: so, that's true, and and uh, you know the the event is so. It, it, you know, just like Kiss is larger than life, this event is larger than life. Uh. And sometimes you hear things over and over enough, and and start to think, well, maybe that actually did happen. Um, it, it's a phenomenal story, and it and it has a life of its own. And and uh, uh, you know, the, the the odd part about it is is that I read things. Carol Ross just did an interview that told about how, uh, you know, it took Kiss from this from a band that was kind of Kind of on the fringes a little bit of, and the Cadillac event made them like the people's band. Uh, You know, the small town America, the fans all over could could, uh, relate to.
3: So here we are in in 2013. You've kept a a relationship with KISS because I see you you get all this access to KISS backstage. You get to see KISS and get to say hello to them or or, or whatever have you. So you've obviously stayed in touch with with KISS in some aspect. Um, But coming up soon here, uh, we have another great KISS book coming up by Ken Sharp called Nothing to Lose, which uh, you had a hand in. How did you get involved with the Nothing to Lose book?
2: Well, Ken Sharp uh, gave me a call and said, uh, you know, can... uh, can I interview for the interview, interview you for the book? And I said, absolutely. And so uh, Ken set up much as what we're doing here, a little, uh, uh, vi- uh audio, uh, call and, and, uh, said, I'm, you know, I'm going to record our interview here. And, and, uh, we went through the whole story and, and Ken said, well, this is great. And, you know, can you supply some pictures? And I had some original documents. You're going to see some original documents in the book about, oh, the budget and so forth. Um, and uh, and so uh, Ken did uh, some writing and then uh, he called back, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen times. We spent all together probably uh, several hours on the phone, uh, double checking facts. And, and then I steered him to uh, some other people, you know, our, our Bill Barnett, uh, who you've met, uh, who did Beth with you while you were here. Yep, you, I remember uh, that. Anna, I remember. You did the vocals and uh, Bill's the mayor of our town. And he talked to uh, to Ken. Uh, Melissa Codden, who uh, was the cheerleader that uh, kind of had an affinity with Gene Simmons, uh, he talked to her, and of course, Coach Dave Brines so talked to Ken. So Ken got a lot of uh, information, and, and uh, I corresponded with him uh, just about a week ago, and he said, uh, you know, he's very excited. The, the Cadillac chapter is the favorite, his favorite chapter of the book, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing it come out uh, next month.
3: I'm hearing a, a ton of great things about this book. Um, the reviews, I mean, we're talking now, it's it's late August, and uh, the reviews are just hitting the internet, and I'm hearing a ton of great reviews about the book. I mean, I guess people will worry that this is a story that they've heard so many times, but what a lot of people are saying about this book is that, yeah, it's a story we've heard, but it's never been told in this detail with first-hand accounts and, you know, great unseen pictures. Um, I spoke with a, pho- a photographer by the name of Len D'Alessio, he actually photographed Kiss at the Beacon Theater in '75, as well as Tower Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in '75. So we have all these people coming from Kiss's past, to putting together this great book. That I'm jazzed to to be able to get it and to finally read it because I've heard so much about it.
2: I think Ken is a great writer, and and uh, in talking to him, I I had the feeling that he was meticulous in his research. So oh, yeah. I think it's going to be a great, great uh, undertaking, and uh, you know, just one more. Piece of the uh, the Kiss, uh, the history of the band.
3: Well, Jim, thanks for sitting down and taking the time and, and telling telling me about this this great historic event that obviously uh, is such a huge part of Kiss's history. It's mentioned in, in almost every Kiss publication. You know, we go from Kiss History, we go from the VH1 specials, and now we have you know the Nothing to Lose book. So, uh, any final thoughts you want to leave to our listeners?
2: The football feels the same here in Cadillac, and and the gym still stands, as you well know. And uh, people here are, are very accommodating, so you know if a Kiss fan happens to be in the neighborhood, uh, it's well worth their time to to stroll down Main Street. They can stand in front of the fire station uh, where the the iconic picture was taken. They can take a look at the football field. So many of those those same locations are pretty much as they were uh, back in that visit. And you know I invite Kiss fans to visit Cadillac, Michigan, and and, uh, and enjoy the town and uh, take in some Kiss sights.
3: It's actually a great town. I've been there more than once, Um, and if you do go to Cadillac, Michigan, you have to eat at a restaurant called Maggie's. The food is outstanding there. Every time I go to Cadillac, I have to have lunch at Maggie's. It's true. It's true. It wouldn't be a Cadillac visit without without Maggie's. So again, uh, Jim, thanks again, and um, I'm really looking forward to that book coming out, and uh, looking forward to all the KISS fans to uh, hearing what we talked about today.
2: Thank you, Andrew, and I look forward to seeing you and Mr. Speed perform again, and you never know, maybe uh, even do an introduction or two.
0: <laughs> Big thanks to Andrew Scambetti, one of our favorite cat men, right? A hell of a drummer and a really nice guy for getting that interview. That was great. Great contribution. Now let's check in with the Matt Porter to find out what the number 75 means when you're in the Kiss Army and when you're listening to podcasts.
1: Wow, Pod Kiss 75 and KISS in 1975. The first things that I think of when you say KISS in 1975 is the cover of KISS Alive. I think that is one of the most kind of definitive versions of the band when you think of that photo. And I first got into KISS around the summer of 1976, so I remember going back to discover those first, you know, the original studio albums, and of course KISS Alive. And I remember listening to those albums just over and over, and, and albums, yeah, records, remember that? And I clearly remember listening to Kiss Alive. We would listen to it at Inside Recess at Percy Elementary School, and yeah, the the mid-70s, pretty great time. You know, spitting blood, ketchup packets in class, and uh, that was Gene Simmons and the teacher saying, when's he going to play another song, you know, as they go through the long uh, cold gin intro and uh, at the time I had no idea what cold gin even was. So it's uh, it's a long time ago. And uh so really congratulations to the podcast on seventy five episodes. I discovered the podcast around episode twenty one, which was an interview with Ace, and I would listen to it on and off. I, I probably started listening more regularly around episode thirty seven. Um, you know, really it was it was just amazing to kind of find these guys that were as crazy as I was, and and you all had an amazing you know viewpoint and different viewpoints on on the topics, and I you know I've since gone back and listened to all of them, but at the time I would listen kind of on and off, and then around 2011 I was a guest on Cassius's Creatures of the Net podcast, and at that point I was doing uh, I was I was doing some specials on Monaco Radio you know my own Kiss specials, but I hadn't even started the Kiss Room yet. And I was on with Cassius, and Ken said, you know, wow, I liked you on Cassius' show. Will you come on and do an episode of the podcast with us? And and I remember being so thrilled because, you know, it was like at that point it was really only – Cassius, the podcast was first, and then Cassius was doing his, but there weren't a lot of, uh, I guess there was really no other podcast. I guess K- History Science Theater would come around later, but that was it. So I was thrilled and, and being able to connect with that, and, and I joined them for episode 52, which was the Halloween special that year, and, and that was my first time on podcast. So I feel very fortunate that Gary and especially Ken would allow me to be part of the podcast team. And then, you know, I got to be part of the Monster Roundtable. We did the long-form video roundtable. Uh, There was discussion of the tour. My favorite episodes, I was actually, I did some of the voices on The Rock, The Halls, which is episode 54 with Adam Black's artwork, and Ken doing a lot of the voices I did. I remember doing Peter Chris's voice, and I was trying to base the voice more on the Kiss Meets the Phantom Peter Chris voice, but uh, we had such a blast, and I remember we would just laugh and laugh and laugh while we were recording that. And the one that really, there's a couple that come to my mind. One of them that really stands out was when we did the Destroyer Resurrected roundtable, and Ken told the story of how he sees Destroyer as this concept with the guy, you know, being lifted up, and that the that the sound of the ambulance and and all this stuff, and it was incredible. And then his story of uh, walking across the dance floor to ask that girl to dance, and Beth coming on was really. You know, one of the greatest moments in podcast history, Um, and really even something like um – the episode 72, Jean, Jean Beauvoir interview, just sticks out in my mind. It's an exceptional interview, and it's the kind of thing that we come to expect from podcasts is Is the fact that we're getting something you just kind of wouldn't get otherwise. And it's the voice coming right you know, to us as fans from these podcasts. And so I'm thrilled that, that Ken really has been so supportive, especially he puts the uh, my Kiss Room shows via the podcast feed. And I've been... Able to become part of this podcast family and podcast network of shows, and now there's you know obviously a ton of different Kiss podcasts, which I think is great. You know everybody has a voice, everybody's able to share it. We're all as fans able to connect with each other, you know, and talk about obviously just Kiss. We love Kiss, and and uh, so really thanks to everybody who listens listens to me or listens to the podcast, and especially to Ken who I've become very good friends with, and uh, through the podcast and. And, and I just uh, thanks to everybody listening and long live kiss and la- long live the podcast.
0: As we wrap up podcast 75, we want to once again, thank everyone who listens and all the people who like us on Facebook and contribute to the show. All the hosts and co-hosts and co-co-hosts we've ever had. And uh, of course, We'd like to thank uh, our friends and our staff. We'd like to thank uh, James Hager. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say that you read my mind, bro. Mike Mayocker, mm-hmm. Jeff Guthrow. Oh yeah, Chris Graham, or Chris Karam, He'll yell at me about saying his name wrong. Chris Sinzak, Cassius Morris, the great Matt Porter, the ever hairy Matt Porter, and everybody that's listening. Uh, if if we didn't mention you, it doesn't mean we don't love you. It's right. just uh, there's been seven years of this stuff, gang, and we're glad to have been on this ride with all of you. And, and here's to 75 more. Absolutely. We'd like to dedicate this installment of podcast to the memory of Tom Hale. Rest in peace, friend. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to
3: Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great
0: information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley. Gene Simmons. Ace Fraley. Peter Criss. Vinnie Vincent. Bruce Kulik, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your Army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free
3: as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present.
0: On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, Thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears.